Howdy, y'all. Welcome to another episode of the JSEP Open Podcast. I'm Dr. Jeff Jarvis. This month, I'd like to share some thoughts with you about medical myths and how a couple of articles in the latest JSEP Open help us bust them. Merriam-Webster defines a myth as a usually traditional story of ostensibly historical events that serves to unfold part of the worldview of a people or explain a practice, belief, or natural phenomenon, or, more pointedly, an unfounded or false notion. The mere existence of a popular TV show named Mythbusters indicates how common the second definition is. The practice of emergency medicine is full of myths ripe for the busting. The current edition of JSEP Open has two, not one, but two, directly related papers about common myths. As everybody knows, only paramedics can give epinephrine, and mechanism of injury, particularly rollover collisions, is a great indicator of major injury. It absolutely mandates rapid transport to the nearest level one trauma center, bypassing lots of other trauma centers. Everybody knows this. It is the gospel. Or is it a myth? Well, let's dig into only paramedics can give epinephrine first. The paper Administration of Epinephrine by Advanced EMTs for Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest in a Rural EMS System by Dr. Jared Bamba and his colleagues from the University of Vermont is a nice performance improvement study that looks at the impact of a statewide policy change. In 2014, Vermont changed the statewide scope of practice to allow advanced EMTs, not just paramedics, advanced EMTs to establish IO access and give epinephrine 1 to 10,000 in cardiac arrest. Now, such protocol changes are routine in EMS, but what isn't routine is actually looking at the impact of these changes. Now, while the most effective role of epinephrine in cardiac arrest is still unclear, we do have pretty good evidence that epinephrine improves the likelihood of ROSC and short-term survival, even if the impact on ultimate neurologic outcome is less clear. And we have some evidence, not not great evidence, but decent evidence that early epinephrine is important, maybe even important to neurologic survival. With these things in mind, the state of Vermont wanted to increase the proportion of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that got epinephrine at all, at all, and for these patients wanted to decrease the time from ALS arrival to the first dose of epinephrine. Now, Vermont is a rural state. And this has implications for cardiac arrest management across the state. The entire state has a population of just 625,000, and that's spread over just about 9,300 square miles. That distribution will lead to only 68 people per square mile. That is not a dense population by any definition. Most of the providers in the state are basic EMTs, and of those who are advanced EMTs, Most are AMTs or advanced EMTs and not paramedics. To give you an example of the size of the Vermont system, at the beginning of the study, there were just over 1,000 AMTs and only 86 paramedics in the state, the entire state. It is a small state. 
Now, because of this, it limits the provision of traditional ACLS care to many cardiac arrests. The assumption of the scope of practice that was changed was that by allowing more providers to give epinephrine, survival would improve. Dr. Bamba and his colleagues performed an interrupted time series exam, better known as a before and after study, to assess the impact of this change. Their primary outcome, the main thing they were trying to drive, was the proportion of cardiac arrest for whom any epinephrine was given. Now, again, I think most of the people listening to this are used to dealing with urban systems where every response gets a paramedic and everybody gets it um, at least one or more doses of epinephrine. That is not the reality in a rural state. Now, that was their primary outcome. Their secondary outcomes included the time to epinephrine administration among those who got epinephrine and then changes in ROSC and mortality. To get into the methodologic weeds a little bit, they used their statewide EMS data registry for the EMS data, and they used probabilistic matching with the Department of Health Vital Records Registry to get mortality data. Now, this was possible because the entire state, all 89 transport and 94 first responder agencies, adopted a single electronic patient care reporting system. And if you happen to be an EMS nerd out there, the system they use is image trends. Now, using this data, they calculated time to epinephrine as the time of ALS, meaning AEMT or paramedic arrival, to the time of first administered epinephrine dose. And while this is helpful, it would have been informative to include the time from 911 to first epinephrine, kind of like was done in the paramedic 2 trial, because this would look at the potential impact on response times by the more commonly available AEMTs rather than the more rare paramedics. Without this interval, any difference found is likely to actually underestimate the true impact of this intervention. Now, with that bit of nerdery out of the way, let's get down to the results. They found that more patients received epinephrine after the change. They went from 53% to 84%, and the median timed epinephrine also decreased. It went from 11.2 minutes down to 8.6 minutes. Their proportion of epinephrine that was given by AEMTs increased from zero, because they couldn't do it before, up to 37% after the protocol change. And then finally, the thing that's probably most important is the rate of ROSC and mortality, and there was no significant difference there. Now, while this was a small observational study and we shouldn't over-extrapolate it, it is valuable, I think, for several reasons. First, it's a great example of how we should be evaluating the impact of EMS protocol changes. We really can't tell if the improvement efforts we make result in actual improvement or real harm unless we systematically look at what happened, much like they did in this study. Second, most clinical guidelines are written based on assumptions about practice that are true for those of us who write the guidelines. Most guidelines for cardiac arrest are premised on the ready availability of resources, something that is highly likely to be true in urban systems, but it's decidedly different in rural systems. This paper helps emphasize that importance. 
And finally, even while the data here is hardly conclusive, it does give credence to the notion that epinephrine, at least as currently given, may not result in the ultimate outcome we'd like to think it does. As for myths, this gives us good evidence that advanced EMTs can give epinephrine in cardiac arrest, and doing so can decrease the time at which it is given, at least in a rural system like this. All right, on to the next myth. I am often reminded of a cartoon that's been floating around the tubes of you for years. It's titled, The One with a Mechanism of Injury. Now, if you've seen this cartoon, you likely already know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those who haven't, it shows the scene of a, it's a cartoon and it shows the scene of a minor vehicle collision on an urban freeway. First responders are trying to convince an ambulatory and apparently uninjured patient to go to the hospital by discussing her mechanism of injury. EMS arrives and upon learning the patient doesn't want to go to the hospital, they repeatedly emphasize how dangerous her mechanism of injury was. They even tried the old poke him in the back to see if it hurts test. Now, eventually, the patient is convinced to go to the hospital. And again, because the mechanism of injury, the patient was actually flown on a helicopter up across the street down to a trauma center next door. You know, because, well, mechanism of injury. Seriously, guys, this is a classic cartoon. If you haven't seen it, it is absolutely worth engaging your Google Foo to go find it. I'll put a link in the show notes to save you some time. I think about this cartoon a lot when thinking about whether or not to consider mechanism of injury in my trauma transport guidelines. So where did this concept of mechanism of injury come from in the first place? Well, EMS largely developed its modern incarnation in the late 60s and early 70s after the paper titled Accidental Death and Disability, the Neglected Disease of Modern Society was published. It focused on the carnage that was our transportation system. Now, because cars at the time were built much like tanks are now, even minor damage to the vehicle translated into huge energy transfer to passengers. Things like rollover collisions were assumed, probably rightly, to highly correlate with major injury, largely because passengers were rarely secured with seatbelts, were often ejected from the rolling car. Trauma triage criteria at the time directed anyone involved in such isolated rollovers to be transported directly to a trauma center. So as modern vehicles began to be engineered around safety and with safety as their primary goal, that association between mechanism and injury became less important. In fact, the most recent CDC trauma triage criteria even removed rollovers from their guidelines. Now, they still have a section on mechanism of injury, but they've demoted it down below anatomic and physiologic abnormalities. Well, Dr. Moriarty and colleagues from Brisbane, Australia, hope to validate this removal with data from their trauma center. Their paper, Isolated Vehicle Rollover is Not an Independent Predictor of Trauma Injury Severity. Well, first off, it should get an award for not burying the lead in the title. Talk about telling the story in the name. I love it. They looked at trauma registry data over a four-year period at the Royal Brisbane and Women's Hospital 
to assess the strength of association between rollover mechanism and the presence of major injury in adult patients transported by the Queensland Ambulance EMS System. They used independent physician review of both the abstracted trauma registry data and the underlying narrative reports from the emergency department and EMS system to classify the mechanism of injury into three groups, non-rollover, isolated rollover, and mixed mechanism rollover. Now, they defined mixed mechanism rollover as anything with what they call a planar injury, meaning contact with any outside items such as other vehicles, poles, trees, livestock, etc., or with patient ejection. And likewise, they defined isolated rollover as anything without such a planar injury. They included anything with lateral vehicle rotation of at least a quarter as a rollover. In other words, if the car tipped over on its side or it rolled several times, it was still considered a rollover. Now, their definition of a major injury was the composite outcome of an ISS of greater than 15 in-hospital death, ICU admission, or surgery on the day of injury. Controlling for other confounders, things like age and comorbidities and physiologic abnormalities, they used multivariable regression to calculate an adjusted odds ratio of major injury as a function of rollover mechanism. Now, as we might expect, the majority of the trauma activations were not from rollovers. Of the 2,446 crashes in that period of time, only 17% were from rollover of any type. Major injury was present in 9.5% of isolated rollover patients, 14% of non-rollover patients, and 28% of mixed mechanism rollovers. Now, when adjusted for other potential confounding variables, there was no significant difference between rollover and non-rollover mechanism. But there was a difference when the different types of rollover collision were broken out and compared. The adjusted odds ratio was 0.58 for isolated rollover versus non-rollover, but 3.52 for mixed mechanism versus isolated rollover. That means the odds of major injury with isolated rollover were 42% lower than non-rollover, but 252% higher with mixed mechanism rollover compared to isolated rollover. In other words, it isn't the rollover that's important, but what, if anything, is hit during the rollover. If the vehicle just rolls over without impacting anything other than the road and doesn't eject the passenger, then the likelihood of major injury is actually less than if there was no rollover. This certainly gives support for the decision to remove isolated rollover from the 2011 CDC trauma triage criteria. Doing so has the potential to reduce the number of patients transported to major trauma centers who might have otherwise been well cared for at a non-trauma center, thus removing some of the volume burden on trauma centers. It also increases the specificity of trauma activation criteria and hopefully allows us to make better use of our valuable trauma teams. It seems like the myth that all rollovers need to go to a trauma center has also been busted. As always, it is important to continually question those traditional, ostensibly true stories that underlie our beliefs and our practice. 
This is the foundation of science, and it's also the scientific basis of medicine. Some occasional myth-busting is healthy for our understanding of our practice. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Now, both of these papers have lots of great details about their methodology and some really important and interesting discussion points. I urge you to download them and read the full papers. But what's that you say you can't because every time you try to download a paper, you get hit by a paywall and you can't get behind the paywall? That is never something that will happen with JSEP Open because, as the name implies, all papers in JSEP Open are open access. That means you will never hit a paywall. They're always open access and free to read. Guys, thank you all for listening. I hope you found this useful. Please go download the articles. Take care, y'all.